this week's episode of the Whiskey and Watches podcast, a friend of the show, local watchmaker at Cincy Watchdock, Matt from Richter and Phillips, recently seen on Hodinkee. Matt is uh, our local watchmaker. He's a great guy, big watch enthusiast, and it's it's a fantastic conversation. Goes almost an hour, so bear with us on it, but it's definitely worth a listen. And he's got a lot of insight into mechanical movements, quartz movements, and then how he got into watches and watchmaking. So uh, sit back, relax, and enjoy. All right, well, welcome to uh, this week's episode of the Whiskey and Watches podcast. Uh, with us this week, we have a special guest from uh, from local retailer Richter & Phillips, which you may have seen recently on Hodinkee, for those of you uh, who, who pay attention to that website. We've got our, our buddy Matt, who's, uh, who's also known as at Cincy Watchdoc, who is the watchmaker there. So welcome to the show, Matt. Thanks, guys. Yeah, welcome. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah it's, uh, it's, it's, it's good to have you on. Good to have somebody who's got a, uh, a more technical expertise about the timepieces that we all uh, know and love and enjoy wearing on a daily basis. Um, sometimes two at once, you never know. Uh, <laughs> guilty yeah. of that on occasion. Yeah, Yeah. previous uh, episode, Spangler pointed out that, you know, watch guys mostly, you know, we really like these things. We're really passionate, and we don't necessarily know how they work. We don't fully <laughs> understand them. Well, that's all right. That's where we come in, and gotta have, uh, you got to have a guy for just about everything nowadays. Oh, Somebody yeah. Somebody you can oh, yeah. trust for sure. Definitely. So why don't we kick it off like we normally do? And uh, Matt, I will let you go first. We'll do the uh, the wrist check and the drink check. So what are you wearing and what are you drinking? Uh, I am wearing uh, Sea Dweller 4K uh, 116600, which has been uh, my constant companion here at the stay at home. And uh, I'm drinking seven-year-old Baker's single single barrel. this is my first time with this whiskey, but I'm loving it. I was lucky to find it. Um, seems like an unusual, uh, it's unusual for me anyway. I'm usually like a bullet 10 year old. Uh, that's yeah. like my go-to um, and a sometimes Woodford fan. So this is, this is pretty tasty. Nice. Yeah. All right, Buzzy, what have you got? All right, well, I've got something that uh, Matt knows because he's worked on it. I've got my Tudor Oyster Prince on. And uh, it, actually, this is the third watch that I've worn today uh, because I was doing some outside uh, work and some chores. So wasn't uh, exactly going to use a uh, you know, watch from the 70s for that. I, I like it a little bit better than, than that. Um, <laughs> did a great job, by the way. It's keeping great time. Oh, awesome. Good to hear. <laughs> I, uh, I'm drinking a uh, Mad Tree Psychopathy still. So What can is it in? It, it's actually in a Psychopathy <laughs> can, unlike all of the Soul Drifter Psychopathies that you got on your recent uh, recent batch. Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> you say, Buzz, you must be going through an IPA phase right now. Uh, I've I've been going through that phase the past fifteen years or so. Uh, okay, <laughs> you're one of but, those people. Uh, okay, that's fine. That's okay. Buzzy, if I'm doing the math right there. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so anyway. it's probably ten. I, I really didn't uh, develop any taste until after college, but that's fair. Most of us don't. <laughs> Yeah, that's about right. <laughs> All right, so I'll go next. I've got on actually the 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 first kind of when I started getting into the hobby, which you know we covered on one of our previous episodes. I've got on my the first mechanical watch that I bought, uh, which is my Tudor Black Bay uh, with the steel bezel, and obviously I picked it up from uh, the guys at Richter and Phillips uh, back in 2017. So uh, good little nice. tie into the show, and. Uh, Matt hasn't had to work on this yet, though, because it's only three years old or two and a half years old. So it's, I think it's got at least a five-year service interval, if I'm not wrong. <laughs> yeah, you're, yeah, hopefully much longer. Actually. Yeah. And then I've got uh, – still working on my bottle of yeah, – and I, we've talked about this. I tend to I tend to try to not drink the same thing. I try, So I end up with all these bottles left that are like half full because I try to drink whatever I have the most of. So I'm still working on my Willet, the pot still uh, bottle. 
that I got a couple weeks ago, which it's a little bit higher proof than I normally drink, um, but it's got great flavor. And with an ice cube or two, it goes down really easy. Yeah, that's a good choice, man. Been really enjoying it. Spangler, bring us home. Well, I will start with what I'm drinking here. Uh, and I've got more of a, I guess, mainstream one. But it's uh, the Lynn Levette 12 that I picked up a couple days ago. Um, and what I'm wearing is actually a recent acquisition from our good friends over at Worn and Wound. Uh, they did a recent collaboration with a brand called Laurier Watches. Um, and I was lucky enough to pick one of these up last Monday and lucky enough to, uh, that it was delivered this Friday, um, and I'm I'm loving it. It's a weird, quirky, uh, you know, single registered, quasi single registered chrono, um, with uh, I believe the dial's a cerulean blue, which I really dig. Totally cool, um, super thin. The bracelet's awesome. Um, yeah, it's really cool. I'm really nice. digging it. Yeah, it's an awesome looking watch. So- Cerulean blue. I think that was uh, in the '64 pack of uh, crayons. You know, that's, yeah. that's <laughs> oh a, yes, <laughs> yes. That's it's a fancy. high high test color. I like that. Yeah, you know, you get I'm, the the fun, fun colors, fun watches. They go together, I guess. Yeah, okay. I'm pretty jealous of that one. You sent that out in our group chat, and it, it it's a stunner for sure. Yeah, and I, I've tried a couple because they're notorious for you know doing their releases and then them selling out pretty quickly. And, you know, I had on the on the trigger for my Apple Pay ready for because I've missed out a couple times on a couple of other watches they've released. So uh, lucky enough to be able to pick one of these bad boys up. Um, and the movement, it's got a uh, it's a shiny Seagull ST19 uh, bicompact chronograph movement, which honestly it's it's holding up pretty well. I mean, you know, it's uh, what can what can you ask for? It's a uh, it's a seagull, so it's nothing too crazy. I'm sure Matt would know a little bit more, middle more uh, about these, but uh, yeah, it's pretty all around good watch, I'd say. Yeah, that's a good pickup. Yeah. The seagull is all right. I mean, they, it gets the job done, kind of like the Miota, which yeah. has been used in so many of these sort of micro brand watches. So it's, you know, it does get the job done, and maybe service is not the option on some of those. They may be just buying another movement. Yeah, uh, that's what I heard. Yeah. More sense. Yeah. Uh, but at any rate, yeah, you enjoy it. That's uh, enjoying the watch is the most important part, I think. Yeah, I'm I'm totally digging it. Can't complain. Cool. Well, and I think we're gonna kind of do a little bit of a segue instead of trying to get through three fresh form finds. Uh, Spangler's got a pretty uh, pretty interesting one, so we're just gonna let him keep going with that. Um, so why don't you talk a little bit more about some more chronographs? Yeah, so uh, since we have Matt on here, we would uh, figured we'd go with a pretty reliable time-tested chronograph movement. And uh, for the fresh form find this week, uh, I'd mentioned that, uh, I think it was probably two or three weeks ago, I had uh, brought up a uh, vintage Omega Seamaster chronograph, the uh, 35.5mm ones uh, with the Omega 321. Uh, the one I found this week is on eBay. Uh, it's from a, an estate sale, so it's uh, bidding currently. I think it's over in four or five days. So if you're listening on Tuesday, it might be one of the last days you can bid on it. So if you're interest, interested, go for it. Um, but yeah, like I, like I said earlier, it's got the uh, Venerable Cal 321 in it, um, which I believe, um, not George Daniels. Who is his, who is his uh, protege? Anybody know? Yeah, the watchmaker's apprentice. Yes. Uh, yes, that person. I'm totally Roger. blanking the name. Oh, uh, yes, yeah. yes. Uh, he uh, has famously said that that's one of the three, two, one is one of his most favorite movements out there. So, uh, Matt, what are you? What are you? What are your takes on the three, two, one? How do you feel about it? Uh, I I would say I would definitely agree. It's yeah. a, it's a yeah. Based on it came out of La Mania. Yep. Um, as the CH twenty seven, I think was his original the base caliber. And it just—it's really fun to work on. It's—it's it's completely adjustable. Mm-hmm. Um, they're really beautiful. They can be extremely highly decorated. And uh, I've worked on quite a few of them and own quite a few of them. And they're—they're just—they're uh, workhorses. Yeah. They're a lot of fun. And and the next incarnation that replaced that, um, the 861, is really based on that caliber, but 
uh, tried and true and made a lot made some improvements with the cam system that actually that's why Omega's used it since 1968 roughly and still essentially the same movement in their Speedmaster caliber I mean these things are um, it's beautiful the 321's fun if there were more spare parts out there that would be a beautiful thing but not so much anymore um, we're all wondering whether or not when I say we're all as watchmakers we're wondering if there are going to be a spare parts complement um, newly created by Omega yeah. for watchmakers to work on their latest release, their launch, um, and whether or not all those components would be compatible with the watches from the 50s and 60s. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's a beautiful watch if you guys can pick one up and find some, uh, some way to not to have a transparent back, <laughs> because if you can't see the movement, yeah. uh, that's, that's really half the fun. They're really just, uh, they're gorgeous. Yeah. Well, that's a that's a that's a good take. Um, we'll ask more about the three, two, one. I'm I'm sure here in a little bit. But but Matt, you know, a lot of our listeners, I would imagine, um, of the five that we have, I think at least three of them are from Cincinnati. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and and most of them probably know you, but but may not know too much about you. So why don't you go ahead and give us your you know a little bit of a little bit of background, and then we'll probably start firing away with some questions. Okay. Uh, let's see. So as far as watches go. Um, Back in 2001 is probably when I got my start in mechanical watches, but I've had, um, I had a Mickey Mouse watch in 1985, a couple of battery-operated pocket watches in the meantime, but as a teenager and young adult, I had a, some kind of a quartz watch strapped on my wrist every day. It was, a, it was an essential. Um, but when my, my passion really started uh, to develop in 2001, I bought a Tag Heuer um, Super Professional 1,000 meter diver, and I thought that was totally haute horology. Um, I didn't take it off for at least 30 days. I slept with it, showered with it, every everything. Uh, kept it under my ear while I was sleeping, you know, so I could hear it tick. I'm just utterly fascinated, um, and I, I started to explore becoming a watchmaker then, and. Um, I wanted to work for TAG, so I called TAG, and I think they were in Connecticut at the time or something, They're one of their service centers, and they said, oh yeah, we'll hire you as a semi-skilled laborer if you want to go ahead and move up here. And uh, my life situation wasn't one that was going to allow me to do that at the time. So I think um, I continued with the TAG theme for um, another eight or nine years, and then I really started um, 2009, Roughly, I started getting really curious about watchmaking as a career, and um, it just really wasn't like there's there's not a great resource to be able to go out. There was not at that time. So now here we're 11 years on, and it's a little bit more accessible, I think, to most people. It's obviously taken off um, globally with with the collectors' world and that sort of thing. But um, I started beating the streets, and on my days off from work. I was putting on a suit and hitting up local jewelry stores, um, trying to get information. My very first stop was Richter and Phillips, and uh, I talked to the crew down there. They advised me to get my gemology certificates and uh, go ahead and start grading diamonds and doing that stuff instead. Watchmaking's a dying art, and uh, I, uh, I kind of, I don't know, I was not super discouraged. Um, I ended up meeting Charlie Cleves, and he was really open and shared a lot of information with me about um, AWCI and their um, find a professional link, I think, is on their website, the American Watchmakers and Clockmakers Institute. So I, uh, after two bouts, two weekends out hitting stores, I started hitting the email circuit and sent out a canned message to a dozen watchmakers in, a re in our region um, and the first one and only one who got back to me was twatches at aol.com and that's Tom Shoemaker who's been uh, the primary instructor for AWCI for uh, a long time and he uh, he advised me told me to come up and take their basic introduction to watchmaking course at the Institute in Harrison and uh, I told him I didn't have any experience and they probably wouldn't let me even buy a seat and he said, if your check clears, 
you come on up here with your tools and I'll, tra- I'll teach you, so don't worry about that. Um, so I, I took that class, I wanted, it was like maybe in the summer of 09, and uh, it, was, it was really tough. I'd never really done anything like that before. I had a basic set of tools. Tom was really hard on me and told me that if I was really passionate about it and really interested in um, becoming a professional watchmaker, then I needed to go to one of the premier schools in the country and get a formal education. And um, he said, he told me about uh, the couple of schools that were in the rec program um, that was really the Rolex Advisory Board sort of programs. And uh, the one that I was most interested in, and he told me was the best program, was in Lidditz, Pennsylvania. So I completed a, um, an application and uh, went up there for a, a nine-hour interview and uh, uh, was offered a position going to school uh, up there and sold my house and packed up a truck. Um, anyway, yeah, I spent two and a half years there, two years as a student. Um, it's one year that's micromechanics heavy and, and introduction to watch repair, and then one year that's really repairs heavy. Um, it's traditional Swiss watchmaking. Um, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't imagine having lived my life any other way over the last 10 years. Uh, when I finished up, I was awarded an apprenticeship with Rolex. Um, that was six months in Pennsylvania and then a month in Switzerland working as an independent watchmaker for them. Um, the month ended up being at the tail end of my experience with them. So I, uh, in March of uh, 2013, I came back from Switzerland, uh, spent another week packing my things up and moved back to Cincinnati um, and got a job with Richter and Phillips. So Rick and I had been sort of in cahoots the last year I was up there and talking about creating this watchmaking lab and a state-of-the-art sort of program and what that looked like and uh, something brand new for them to offer uh, in-house Rolex-trained watchmaker for their clients. And um, now, just over seven years, uh, we have a great relationship. We have an awesome clientele. Um, I still get to practice my passion every day, uh, which is awesome. It's I get to share it with you guys. It's something that um, I wish I had had when I was st- when I started to collect uh, 20 years ago, and when I, I guess when I got my first piece that brought me into the collecting phase. Uh, it's so that's the way I approach what I do in a lot of ways with as much honesty and transparency as possible. I want to share this with as many people as possible. Even if that creates my competition, it doesn't. That's that's part of the fun of it. Is what's lost today in many fields is mentorship, and being able to bring people up with you um, and experience have those experiences. So through a lot of the stuff I do, education's huge, um, and that that kind of dialogue is really important. And that's where the Build-A-Watch programs come in with AWCI and some lectures and seminars that we've partnered in uh, to try and just reach out to people and uh, take the, some of the stigma away, take the, uh, the curtains down, so to speak, and make sure that everybody is... Uh, I don't need you to think that I'm going back in the back with your watch, opening it up, spitting in it, shaking it around a little <laughs> bit and bringing it back out, <clears throat> which, you know, there's some... There were some eras where people thought that about professional watchmakers. They, um, I get a lot of, I still get a lot of, uh, get a lot of people who come in who have been badly treated. It's like going to the pound uh, and looking at animals to adopt, and they just they're cowering in the corner. <laughs> I have customers who kind of feel the same way because they've been beaten a little bit, and. Uh, we, we try and treat them with a little an extra level, a higher level of integrity and care. Um, and that goes for everybody, but especially people who have been burned, just to let them know they've come to the, their final stop to get treated well and get the right service. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it, it was cool to see, you know, some of the AWCI stuff that you've been doing and in your, in your work, you know, state-of-the-art workshop featured in that Hodinkee article, because I think that really is an important piece of what you guys are doing down there at Richter and Phillips. It's not, 
just that you carry the certain brands and, and all this other stuff, but there's definitely a full suite of service that is, you know, it, it's pretty awesome. And, and, you know, somebody with, with your level of experience and your, and your education when it comes to that, I, I think it's, it's interesting. I remember the one time Buzzy and I were in there talking with Rick uh, late one night on a Thursday when you guys were open late. That was when he let us try on the uh, – actually, Spangler just missed out. He wanted to go grab dinner, and uh, he missed out trying on the white ceramic Daytona yeah, <laughs> that, I, that I knew you guys had in the back. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I know Rick Rick always mentions that, you know, that what you guys do or what you do in, in that in that um, workshop is, you know, a lot of, you know, kind of kind of what sets them apart being the, the only person I think – in a pretty wide radius that's actually licensed or authorized to do warranty work for Rolex um, here in Cincy. That's pretty spectacular. Yeah, that was a, that was a really great opportunity that was presented a few years ago uh, first, and Rolex was trying to get buy-in from watchmakers in the field and see who would be willing to go to a, maybe to an extra level. And it, yeah, it's cool. We don't have a great deal of warranty work for them that goes back but it's nice to be able to offer a 96-hour turnaround to that customer instead of having it be potentially 12 days or, you know, give or take. So that's a pretty cool offering. Not very many brands extend the opportunity for their watchmakers to, um, to do warranty work in the field. So that's something unique. And obviously, um, with the modern warranties a lot of these brands have, they're really encouraging customers to send the watches back for after sale service to their, you know, for extended periods of time. So as far as warranties go, um, that is a big deal. Oh, definitely. Well, and I, I know that uh, even you're saying that um, it's not just the mechanical work, but it's even the, the case finishing and, and stuff like that. That's a part of it too, right? Yeah, I'd say uh, it's interesting from watchmaker's perspective and the collector's perspective. Um, it's only been in the last couple of years there that uh, people have not refinished watches, you know. And even still, <laughs> most of the watches that come into my workshop, ninety ninety eight percent of them, the customer wants the watch to look brand new. Uh, but you know, even when I was in school in two thousand eleven, two thousand twelve. Um, Rolex was reticent to offer any services that didn't include a full refinish. So if your Paul Newman Daytona came in, um, Omega, the same thing. If you got a a Speedmaster in from the 60s that had any corrosion on the movement or something, that might be a complete movement swap kind of thing where they would... would, And with some of the brands, I mean, if if the cosmetics are there, if there was a a scratch across their branding on different components, then they would replace that component. Just because the um, the image of the particular brand is the the sacredness of that image or their branding is in that image, and uh, and if it's marred in some way, then that could potentially be. I mean, you get it from a you know, I guess a, a fundamental conception, but you don't really get it from what's happened with the collector's market. So a lot of the brands have developed. Um, really super high-tech departments of identifying components to make sure dials and other components on like hands and things like that are genuine and that they're period correct and that you don't have Franken watches and other things like that. So I've been I've had some training opportunities in different places around the country and seen these workshops and it's it's impressive um, that the emphasis is there finally for the collector um, to have their movement serviced, and we, when we were in school, we called it ninja watchmaking, where we get in and out without anyone ever having none. We were there. The result <laughs> is a successful mission. Yeah. Your watch has got another service interval, but you would have never known I was in the watch by looking at it cosmetically, and that is, that's the key. Especially you're talking about 321. Anything with that caliber in it uh, is they're highly collectible. Even the Seamaster, the three-register Seamaster from the early 60s to the to the mid to late 60s even, um, for a while, the Speedmasters were going up through the roof, but that Seamaster was staying around like 1500 bucks. Yeah. You could pick up a great 321 uh, for, but if you wanted a Speedmaster, you're going to spend three or four times that. 
Uh, so now even those have those have clawed up in value. So as we see the value rise and then the integrity of that value is held in its condition and authenticity, um, the, the genuine condition, is, it's pretty remarkable to see and to also be a steward for that, uh, for, for a lot of these collectors. It's, uh, it's fun. It's a big challenge and responsibility sometimes, but it's a lot of fun. Well, it makes sense that... Yeah, that that's something that you get when when me as a person is able to bring my watch physically to the person that's going to do the work, right? Versus yeah. shipping yeah. it somewhere, and God only knows when you're going to get it back. Yeah, for sure. Did you guys meet at one of the red bars? My friends from Indianapolis. I did. <laughs> were you at the? I did. Yes, there? that. Um, some of his watches may have – so I think it was episode four or five we did. It was a recap of that Red Bar event, and yeah. he got some airtime on that. I didn't, I didn't out him with his with Instagram handle, although I guess Instagram handle doesn't really out him, but um, he, he had it. some – yeah, he had some amazing pieces there. We talked about you – know, I couldn't even remember all the references, um, but that Speedmaster that he had was unbelievable. I worked on that Speedmaster in 2014. A guy found me on Instagram, <clears throat> um, sent me that watch. He's up in like north north central U.S. and I did a full overhaul on it. And um, in 2016, I think, or early in 17, that uh, the guy from Indianapolis got a hold of me and said, "I think you've worked on this watch." There's, a, there's an issue with the hour recorder, and it's notorious in the 321. This particular spring can be a little bit finicky. And I said, yeah, well, I'll bring it or send it, and I'll take a look at it, and we'll get you squared away. It's a 10-minute fix and a day and a half of testing. And uh, he, he actually brought it up, and now he's con- he comes at least once a quarter and brings some, as you guys know, some really unique watches. Yeah. So I'll do movement overhaul. It took... A, it took all of 15 minutes for him to realize that I would honor the, he didn't want any cosmetics or anything like that. He was very concerned. And I said, no, it's, uh, it's not something I do. It's your prerogative the way you want it. Just, uh, don't go swimming. (laughs) (laughs) That's always the disclosure though. Someone will ask with one of those vintage pieces for a pressure check and it may pass and I can just, I'll disclose whether or not it passed. And I'll say it passed, and you could swim in it, but I wouldn't. And that's always the disclaimer. <laughs> and that goes with even uh, what watch like the Tudor Buzz has, or some of those that aren't exceedingly valuable. You can still swim in that 1500 date model from you know the early 1980s or late 70s, but I wouldn't. You know? <laughs> why? Why would you something with an acrylic crystal like that from back in the day? Maybe the crown didn't screw down perfectly, or you got a belly button lint in there, or something. That's just, yeah, it's 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 fun. But that that gentleman in particular has shown me some watches I didn't even think existed in the metal. So that's a lot of fun. Okay, so that's a perfect segue, Matt. The okay. number one question that I want to ask is: of all the pieces you've ever worked on, you're just what's the heaviest hitter what's what's the coolest thing that that you have ever worked on and why um i don't know what the i've worked on a couple of daytonas um i my i the the oldest neatest watch i've ever worked on was one of my own um i had a 58 speedmaster that I picked up from a friend. Um, it has since found a new home, but it was a 321 straight lug. It was a two, uh, 2915-3. Um, it was the third incarnation of the original Speedy, and it was probably it, it probably made me... Um, I took it out of the case, and it sat on my bench and under glass for about a week before I had the courage to take the hands off. It was just that. Yeah. It was a one. It was a one owner watch, <clears throat> and it was purchased by the by the gentleman I got it from in South Africa. He was working as a contractor in like um, 1961 or something like that. So it was a couple years old probably by the time he got it. But that was probably that was one of those handshaking. 
I'm not sure how many exist still watches um, that I did work on. I've had a few that I've um, taken to the authentication point just to give customers peace of mind before they decide on restoration procedure um, or contacting Rolex in Geneva. And one of them was a Patalon from uh, like 1961 or 62. Some um, It was their triple date moon phase uh, Rolex model. That is just, they're, they're beautiful. They're somewhat rare in yellow gold. Um, they're even more rare in other metals, but it was a beautiful watch. Um, I'm trying to think, not, not everything. I've had a couple Paul Newmans come through that uh, I generally would pass on those uh, the last couple of years that I even had access to getting any kind of spare part for them because it got so, as you guys, if you've read anything about the history in the um, 2011, 12, 13, 14, it, as those watches started to go, when they went from uh, five figures to six, um, some things really got screwy and some really big name watch dealers uh, got in hot water and had some had their reputations kind of thrown around a little bit into the mud and uh, yeah so I started to shy away from those a lot I can give um, I can I still really give my opinion on authenticity of movements because that's what I know the most but when it comes to dials and things like that I've I tend to be a little bit more cautious nowadays that makes but sense. those are probably those are two of my favorite pieces though the Patalone and the um, I think I'm saying that right. And the, the speedy is just, it's, yeah, when it makes your hands sweat a little bit. It's, <laughs> it's kind of fun. I got to imagine that uh, sweaty hands is a, an occupational hazard uh, for, for your profession. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, I had, a, <clears throat> I've had, um, last, last year, I guess at the end of the year, I had a guy uh, from Chicago that I've done quite a few watches for sent me a um, a Tudor Monte Carlo the home plate yeah, yeah. and uh, he's like and it's not I mean these are not like they're very valuable watches now but they're not the most high grade movements uh, which is really interesting I think but the uh, I think I needed a part or something and he said well I'm going to go ahead and send you this other one he had a parts Monte Carlo sitting there. So now these guys are they're picking up like ten to twelve thousand dollar parts watches Jeez. to fix their you know their sixteen sixteen to twenty five thousand dollar uh yeah and I don't and then selling the other one on there was nothing wrong with it. Um it just didn't have it wasn't as good a condition. It's that's a lot see a lot I mean that's so funny. That's so funny because, you know, when when you have like a, a parts car in your yard to keep your other car running, it's considered trashy. But when you have a parts watch to keep your other watch, you know, running, that's pure class. Yeah. You know. Now, in fairness, though, Buzz, I would feel like the parts car and the other car to keep them running probably combined don't equal what that parts watch might like the dollar amount for that parts Monte Carlo. So yeah. actually, so yeah, the the Tudor Monte Carlo or the Chevy Monte Carlo, I would imagine the Tudor <laughs> at this point is probably worth a little bit more. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, I would think so. But that's what we nowadays like the way that spare parts for a lot of these watches have dried up. That's been the the issue for a lot of watchmakers now. The independence, all this stuff has been available. So then, twenty years ago the brands really started to consolidate their spare parts accounts and limit spare parts access. And it's, it was at the various times spearheaded by a couple of different brands um, where they were really verifying the skill of the people who were in the field and that continues today. So where I'm a, I'm a uh, Rolex trained watchmaker, that's my specialty. I work on other things if I can get spare parts. There's um, you know, there are Breitling experts out there who have access to their parts. There's still Cartier people out there who have access to their parts. Um, I'm also Omega qualified and have access to the sports, uh, uh, spare parts for all the swatch. Um, but I really specialize as a Rolex trained watchmaker. 
So I may be the foot doctor and then the, the heart surgeons out there who works on Audemars or, you know, there, there's still guys out there working on Paddock. And, you know, that's sort of what I've seen in the transition um, during my experience, my exposure, is that you, if you brought, if one of you got an Audemars and came in to see me, we could consult about it, but then I'm going to try and find you either their factory service or somebody highly skilled and qualified with access to their spare parts who would, you know, you don't take your Ferrari to the Ford dealership. Uh, all those other, you know, those little uh, turns of phrase that you can say. Um, and that's another thing, that's part of that integrity in business that I have that I'm responsible for to you all uh, as my clients and, uh, and the public at large. Uh, so I think, um, I'm not sure why I segued into explaining that, but it, it really is, it's culturally significant now to, to be responsible in that way. And so there's, there's a lot of people out there who are really struggling to find enough work, so they take in everything. And it's a dangerous game because they want to work on everything and they, they can find themselves in, in a real pickle. And then, um, and then I end up with that watch or someone else. Or I, say, for instance, I take in that Audemars and something gets scratched or damaged and I don't have access to those parts. Um, my reputation is on the line with every one of those things and we're in a very small community so I would much rather be able to advise you and have you have a great experience and not have your money in my pocket <laughs> but have your you know your respect for having turned you away or turned you onto that right path well I mean I think assisting somebody to find the right thing is never going to be a bad thing I mean just because that guy's bringing in an Audemars that doesn't mean the next time he's not bringing you a Rolex you know what I mean? It's it's the same it's the same thing. Yeah, or he's got the Audemars and then he decides he's going to get married and comes back for the engagement ring, which is always <laughs> what uh, which is always what my boss says. They may not come back in with another watch, uh, but they might come in because their you know their son's graduating from college or something. Yeah, and they need a great gift. So from the from the businessman's perspective, that's great. But for a person who wants to be able to sleep at night. I have a completely uh, different perspective on that, you know? Yeah. And that's great. And then, I, you know, I've really valued getting to know the watch community from from a professional side and from the enthusiast side because I, I definitely straddle that line. I love collecting watches. I love working on watches, and I am a professional at that. Um, so I definitely understand both sides of that coin. Yet another good segue... So, you know, talking about your enthusiast side, um, you know, you, you've uh, shared a couple of the great uh, pieces in, in your collection or that have been in your collection. Um, what, what's your favorite? What's a favorite watch you've ever owned? Um, man, you guys are asking some loaded questions. <laughs> <laughs> That Speedy is up there. Well, it should um, be. But it was before <laughs> before Speedies were on the moon. That Speedy was made. That's pretty cool. How, how long did you yeah. own that Speedy for, by I, the way? Uh, maybe three okay. years. Not yeah. a long time. I ended up. Uh, I lived downtown at the time and uh, really wanted some green space, and ended up buying a house in that particular watch helped facilitate uh, that transition. <laughs> so, I was they might help a little bit for that, yeah. Uh, That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I won't go into the nuts and bolts of it, but it was a pretty good uh, pretty good transaction. I would imagine. Uh, for, the, for that three years. Um, it's one of those, I, I, and on the one hand, you still wish you had because it was such a great watch, and it's much more valuable today than it was then. But um, I have... I thought about this because I figured the question would come up. <laughs> when I was in watchmaking school, um, there was a kid from Colorado whose dad had a jewelry store and um, continued to send him watches throughout to work on during, we had this uh, sort of real life repair section where we were taking in jobs from the public or from family friends. And his dad sent him a 69 Speedy, head only with a, uh, it was a dot over 90, um, and it, it was in pretty rough shape. The dial was in pretty rough shape. Uh, the hands were rough. The, the bezel was pretty. The case was in good shape. 
it needed pushers and a lot of movement work. And I had just found out of a watchmaker's estate who worked on Omega in the 60s and 70s a bunch, a horde of spare parts, including dials and hands and bezels and all sorts of fun stuff. So I helped this kid restore the Speedmaster with period correct parts. And um, about six months later, he, um, he thought the sky was falling, so he was trading all of his worldly possessions for precious metals <laughs> and thought we were going back on the gold standard. <laughs> it was, uh, so I traded him, like, I don't know, like $800 worth of gold or something for the Speedmaster. And um, I, it was all my parts, so it was just interesting. I loved the watch, and I... I um, I brought it back to Cincinnati with me, and I had it on a leather strap and ended up uh, putting on a bracelet and sold it And about, uh, I guess that was probably in 2014. And then a couple of years later, the person I sold it to came back and, and said, I don't wear it, I'm not interested anymore, do you want to buy it back? And I had been like regretting ever having sold it. It was, it's just, yeah. just a, like a charcoal dial, just a really sexy, yeah. it's one of the sexiest watches. <laughs> And uh, last year, the Pre-Moon case back, uh, second year, the 861, and I bought it back from him, and I, it's, it's a permanent addition to my collection. It's, it's not going back. There's some fate involved with the fact that the watch came back. So uh, anyway, in answer to your question, that's probably, right now, that's, that's the, the object of affection. I have quite a few really sentimental pieces. Um, I made a watch when I was in school, that's really um, important to me, but this one in particular because I it's it's so wearable and I I do quite often. Uh, man, what that Speedmaster is such a sexy watch. It, it has been for throughout its existence, and still even as a brand new watch today, is still one of my favorites. No, no matter how much Good gold stuff. I offer you, you're, you're not going to sell it. Now let's not get carried away. <laughs> Probably not. It could still come. It could come back. Plus, how much gold you have offhand? Eight hundred bucks worth. Yeah. <laughs> hey, if Ron Swanson never told, I won't either. <laughs> That's hilarious. Oh man. Uh, so Evan, I think you had a couple questions, right? Yeah. No. So I mean, just from like a technical perspective, because I like to get kind of get in the nuts and bolts of it. But you know, again, I don't really know that much into it. Um, but as a watchmaker, what are the watches that, like, you think when you get them in, you know, super easy, quick fix, out the door real fast, versus the ones that are, you know, use, you know, real pain, pain on the rear end to work on? Which ones would you? Um, <clears throat> I, Salita are kind of a pain in the neck. There are some wear oh, yeah. points in them, um, and they're in a lot of... You find them in a lot of tag and some of the some of the others the swatch product um, and some of the smaller brands that are yeah. out there too. That the Salita SW is it's a 200-1 I think um, has a couple of weak points and really have to be paying attention yeah. to those. Um, the easy ones to work on are a lot of the Eta because their parts are still really inexpensive. Um, they're not always the easiest to time out, but there are so many millions of them out there that you can you can throw enough parts at it where you can bring it into basically cost spec <laughs> without yeah. much trouble um, and without much money. So that a lot of that's factored in up front. Um, a lot of them, even I still occasionally work on a fifteen hundred caliber Rolex. And they just fall together, and they might be within cost without making any adjustments to them, just by taking them apart, cleaning them, and putting them oh, back wow. together. They're just, they're, they're still, um, in my estimation, uh, even without my affiliation, having worked on them early in my career, it's, it's the last and friendliest watchmaker's movement out there because they're so adjustable. Um, you can adjust the banking and all and the all the stuff with the pallet that you can't do anymore. Had an overcoil air, hairspring that was fully adjustable. It was just a lot yeah. of fun um, working on those. And the the parts resource on that since dried up. But um, I'm trying to think. The 7750 gets a bad rap because it's so thick. 
and it's kind of overplayed and for some reason it's just that's all that space that it takes up and they couldn't have make it, made it a bi-directional yeah. wind with the audience. Well, so about it, yeah. I mean, come on. You, you've, it's gigantic. You've heard our podcast before is what you're saying. <laughs> well, and yeah, and I cut my teeth on it as a, as a chronograph um, service person on that caliber. I probably serviced that movement um, Outside of Rolex calibers, I may have serviced that movement more than any other movement in uh, in my career because I serviced it 300 times as a student because yeah. all my exams <laughs> were based on that caliber. But it goes together beautifully. It goes like hell after you get it uh, all cleaned and yeah. ready to go. And 295 degrees of amplitude, and you can get a 7 to 10 second delta in both states. Uh, that's it full wind and minus 24 hours with the chrono on and the chrono off with stable all the way across the board it is extremely difficult to find a caliber that's so reliable um then they have they have their um they have their weak points too but that those i think the it's a it's an extremely reliable and robust uh caliber but yeah the salita is a tough one most quartz are really a pain in the neck nowadays because um, especially some of these that still use a lot of steel components because everything we do we're exposed to magnetic fields and they, the magnetic fields of laptops and batteries and radiologists and the checkout scanner at the grocery store and metal detectors at the airport they do weird things to battery operated watches and uh, it's just it's so odd uh, I had a woman brought in an Omega DeVille off and on for about, I don't know, three or four months. And she she just continued to have the same problem with the watch. She worked at Procter & Gamble, walked down the street, nice as could be. So after the last time she brought it down and I looked at it, I really couldn't find anything. It ran beautifully for me the times that I had it. And uh, I asked her to write down everything that she was doing. And she even wrote down when she was going to the grocery store. And that's when she was having problems when she was going out the grocery store, but she was having them scan her out, and I couldn't figure out what was going on, that she wasn't being exposed. She was getting back and forth to the grocery store in her Tesla, <laughs> and the Teslas, the batteries were screwing around with her. She would look down all of a sudden, she'd be driving back to her apartment downtown, and her watch would be eight minutes slow. Huh. And that's probably the amount of time it would take her to the grocery to store. Yeah, that's crazy! Store. Wow, <laughs> that's insane. So, she, yeah, we eventually figure it out. So, about every three months or so, I call her and just we shoot the breeze for a few minutes and we talk about her watch. <laughs> but the the uh, the effects of magnetism on watches lately, quartz and otherwise, has just been it's been really interesting. This whole um, everything we do now we're exposing our, our watches to magnetic fields and uh, they do they can do goofy yeah. things and sporadically not consistently yeah. either that's the that's the real yeah. fun part actually <laughs> so I've got I've got kind of two questions but one one I think I'll save a little bit later just because it'll be fun to close on it a little bit I think but so the one that I come back with the first time I'd heard somebody talk about a parts watch was on a Fratello article and it was for a Seiko. So I know obviously you, you, you do do a lot of the stuff on the Swiss side, but you guys also carry Grand Seiko and Seiko. And I know the major everything that they do is in-house. And I know that they have a different take on things than the Swiss do. But, you know, I guess talk a little bit about, you know, Seiko, Grand Seiko, maybe touch a little bit on spring drive and their quartz movements, but just because your comments about, you know, quartz and magnetism, I guess I just find it interesting that they – they're this whole other universe of fine watchmaking that's not Swiss, and it's it's just it's. I'd be curious as to your thoughts on those as well. Um, Seiko's a big deal, um, in, in both Seiko and Grand Seiko, and um, the spring drive mechanism is is really kind of an unusual thing as a hybrid sort of mechanism. I don't know in terms of um, we've carried, I guess, getting on three years now, two and a half years. And I don't, we've had maybe two come back to get sent in for warranty repair, and they've been under warranty. But I don't see, um, actually we, maybe you guys were there, we had a conversation about service intervals 
for the spring drive mechanism and because of the nature of, of how it works, whether those service intervals were two to three years or if you could get five to seven, which is that they claim because of modern lubricants that you can get seven to 10. So uh, time will tell and in, in what their launch has been and my experience with it, I don't have enough experience yet to really uh, to say firsthand. But as far as warranty goes, we've in two and a half years, I guess it's been, it's been we've had two watches come in with issues uh, that have gone back to them. They uh, they've got all their eggs in one basket. They've got maybe one or two technicians in the U.S. who work on their warranty stuff for Grand Seiko. Mm -hmm. um, their quartz is unbelievably good. I don't know if you guys have seen um, that mechanism in any sort of art form, but they're truly hand-assembled. They're manufactured to be serviceable movements. Um, there's no plastic. Um, they're made of metal components. They're made, the bridges are brass. They're, they're, they're not pressed mm -hmm. metal. And they're, they're highly serviceable, which is, um, Rolex did, Paddock did, some of these other brands, Audemars, um, all had high-grade quartz movements, some still do. And they're finally finished as high grade as a, or highly finished as a, a Swiss movement. Um, and, but that, I think that uh, there are no spare parts accounts issued for Grand Seiko. There's, I don't think any Zeratsu polishers in the US yet. Uh, so as far as after sales service, if you want to refinish, I'm not sure what that looks like. Uh, we're supposed to have some more um, really in-depth training with Grand Seiko to talk about that, but there right now is no watchmaker training. Um, I like to, I put myself out there with all the brands we carry to make sure they know that I love to train mm -hmm. um, and I can do it on, I can do it on Zoom or I can do it on FaceTime or I can do it on whatever platform they want. If we can't do it uh, in person, I'll do it remotely. Because I, I want to know, and I want to make sure I can offer that to the customer. Um, and Seiko, Seiko is the same thing. I can work on the stuff they have, but they're not selling modern product on the Lux line. So Presage and Prospects. I'm not going to get the bezel for the one you knocked off when you were, whatever you were doing, working in the backyard or um, however that part got damaged. Um, which is, like, so the rest of the Prospects from the turtle on back... Those, many of those spare parts are available, so we can get crystals, crowns, etc., cetera, uh, movement components. Um, a lot of times there's more value in sending them to Seiko to have them worked on because they're cheaper than I am. Uh, so, uh, and they, a lot of the, some of the service includes spare parts that, um, that can be very expensive without charging a, a customer. So we take advantage of that when we can, again, just to save the, cons the end consumer um, it may take a few extra days, but it might save them quite a bit of money. Uh, but I really like what they're doing, and we haven't had any of the Lux line come back either for warranty, which is impressive. And I'm sure you guys have been watching their releases uh, so far in 2020. I haven't gotten any too much feedback on that yet, but they've got some really impressive. Actually, Spence, you you did. We sent yeah, a we did. Messages back and we forth. did. On the turn, yeah, the I'm calling it the Seiko Turnograph. That's a pretty. I so that that one came out in like January, and I was like, when when somebody when you guys get this in, I got to come in and see it. And then obviously COVID happened, so. Um, but I feel like yeah. you guys are doing the soft open this week, and then open it a little bit more up the following. I will probably be in to see that thing, um, just because it's yeah. a. I like a lot of what. You know, some of the stuff that they're coming out with that you can tell it's more enthusiast driven. So like the the second iteration of the Willard reissue that is slightly smaller and a third the price of the limited looks amazing. Yeah, and then the, the new 62 that, mass okay. ones that just came out, like in five different colors. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think they realized that the, that SLA 017 wasn't that was the. The 62 Moss tribute was that 2017. Yeah. They realized that if they made 5,000 of those, they would sell 5,000 of them instead of having these limited. So they keep it limited in a way, but create at least a, something where you can send a couple hundred to each continent uh, or, you know, many hundreds to several markets to make sure that the people can get it. I've only seen that SLA 017 in person one time in my life. 
um, and it was on a Seiko executive at an event a couple of years ago. So uh, that's how rare those things were, how quickly they went. That's yeah. crazy. Well, I mean, and, and I think my, my other question was kind of speaking of listening to the enthusiasts, um, and we were talking about the 321 movement earlier. Um, them releasing the new, essentially the Ed White Speedmaster with the 321 movement, which is supposed to be, you know, the, the, the ultra specific scan of, a, of an original piece from one of the astronauts. I guess just, you know, what is, what is your take on that, that new piece? And then, like you said, is that going to maybe open up some spare parts for some of these older ones? Because like we talked about, they haven't made that movement up until when it came out in the, in the what was it, a Platinum Speedmaster last year or a Gold Speedmaster last year? They haven't made that yeah, movement in yeah, 50 no years. Problem. So yeah. is that going to help with, with service on some of those older ones? Or, or do you still think people are – I guess it just depends on the person. Do you want your watch to work or do you still want it to have all period correct 50-year-old parts? Well, at this time, nothing's being – we might see one of those watches yeah. this year. And we might only see one next year. So it's it, – it kind of blows me away that you got all these limited edition Speedmasters and we can get two or three a year, but now you have the one we really want and that will sell out for sure and we may see one in the calendar year, which is, I'm all for exclusivity, uh, but that is that is at the extreme in my opinion. So um, I don't know. The answer is I'm not sure and we'll, uh, time's going to tell. I don't think they're going to ramp up to the capability of making, you know, 30,000 watches a year in that particular um, configuration uh, because it's, it's, too, um, it's too valuable to them to keep. Uh, I, a lot of brands are trying to keep up with Rolex right now in terms of creating market demand for their product and creating that era of exclusivity and creating the rarity or scarcity um, whether it exists or not, whether they warehoused, you know, 50,000 units or not, what they're distributing is all that there is available. And it really, it's alluring, as you guys know, very alluring. So um, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see exactly how that goes. I'd like to see a shift in Omega back to a lot of heritage that way because I think they're, they've got so much pedigree and they've got such a great reputation. They really have some beautiful movements and they own all that stuff. Um, Swatch bought up. Swatch is the reason the mechanical watch industry still exists in a lot of ways, and um, and they've got they've got an amazing capability right now. Hamilton's doing it uh, and doing it really well. Tissot's doing it and doing it really well, and they're doing a lot of high grade chronometer sort of stuff for sub one thousand dollars, which is um, it's awesome to be able to get. Uh, Especially that black PVD with the ceramic bezel. That oh, yeah, did. that's a good one. That's a real good one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, anyway, yeah, that's... I don't know what Omega's long plan is for that, but the watch is like the, uh, the first Omega in space. I can't believe that watch. That's, that's more true to the examples of the watch that were sent to NASA. Uh, the straight lug, pre-moon... Basically, it hasn't. It doesn't have a 321. What would happen if they introduced the FOIS with the 321? Is that a twenty thousand dollar watch because it's has that heritage? It's a straight lug, early 60s. I don't know. I mean, it's just it's those things that are, that for me, I'm trying to figure that out as a uh, as a watch buyer for the store as much as I am as a as an end consumer and a service technician or watchmaker. Uh, it, it's going to be fun to watch, I think, what some of these brands do heritage-wise over the next few years and uh, exclusivity-wise over the next few years. The the uh, the 10 limited edition launches every year that some of these brands have, that I think needs to go away because it really doesn't... What's the next latest, greatest limited edition piece that I'm never going to yeah. see? Why not, do, why not do one or two releases a year and... Um, up that and make sure that it's it remains accessible at least to most of the population. Yeah, I mean, we've joked on this podcast before. Could could somebody remind the folks at Omega that 
they make a blue dial integrated bracelet sports watch that actually is is a pretty solid piece called the constellation <laughs> yeah. yeah it's it's the most popular style of watch right now and they make one and it's a really good one with a fantastic movement and they're they just like oh we don't have one of those yeah you do <laughs> yeah well and they relaunched the globemaster a couple of years ago which got absolutely no press it's a little too thick and it's a little too chubby and um but it's that it's that true pedigree back to the original constellation and it has that fluted bevel bezel with the really tight flutes that i'm it's just it really is yeah and it's just it's not it's not capitalized on as well as it could have been um if they just scaled it down um one fifteenth of what it is right now just slightly or fourteen fifteenths of what it is right now just slightly smaller Anyway, that's uh, they they have a lot of that heritage, and that's what the the I just I did a training seminar with Omega a couple of weeks ago, and one of the things they talk about in the Globemaster is its heritage to the constellation, and that's where it came from. But the marketing was never that way when they originally launched it. They didn't talk about the constellation very much, but that like mid '60s to early '70s constellation is one of the most beautiful. They're so yeah. iconic. And they're gorgeous, and they're like 36, 37 millimeter with the 18 karat yellow gold, and they're a boat anchor. They're just an amazing watch, and with the, the chronometer grade movements and all of those, um, maybe 562 caliber in the earlier ones. They're just, um, they're still workhorses, and I get them in for service, and they're they're fun to work on, and they're highly serviceable. But anyway, uh, I I digress. That was. Uh, a great um it was a great line for them that's kind of a shadow of itself and that as you say it's it could be capitalized on a lot better and at that price point for a lot of those guys holy smokes sub 10k for the special versions with you know white gold bezel i think yeah anyway well, Spangler, we're 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 at the hour mark. You have I I feel like you you may have had one more question for Matt before we wrap up. Anything? Uh, yeah, I can give like one more really fast. Well, I don't know. It may be faster or not. We'll we'll see here. Um, <laughs> but um, real fast, you can go as technical as you want to go, Matt. But if you were going to make your perfect movement, right. and I guess case if you're looking at like anti-magnetic properties, what would go into it? Yeah. What would go into it? Oh, uh, are you you're saying specifically? Well, like if you if you were design your perfect movement, that's one that's like easily serviceable, anti-magnetic. You know, what what would go into it? Uh, I worked on it. Uh, the thirty-two thirty-five from Rolex is that. Right now, they're doing some ridiculous stuff to catch up with a couple of other brands with anti-magnetic. Yeah. But it's, um, I really like the Milgauss. I love the concept. I love the anti-magnetic yeah. properties of that, if you're talking about that going forward. I've really been admiring it lately, and there's, there was some speculation before uh, Basel was canceled or pushed uh, of what potentially Milgauss being discontinued and relaunched in a, uh, in a watch that was highly um, uh, derisive, I guess, of its original form with a, a bi-directional rotating yep. bezel and that sort of thing. Um, I think Omega did an Aquaterra version that was their 15,000 Gauss watch a couple of years ago, which I really love. Um, I think they should have, they could have made that a little bit more beefed up. But that, to me, the perfect watch for somebody like me is that watch that you can, that's highly magnet, magnetism resistant. You can beat the heck out of it. Um, it's not so highly decorated on the outside that you wouldn't wear it mowing the lawn. So I'm a big tool watch person, and I want to be able to wear a watch as well with a tuxedo as I do if I'm working in the yard or if I'm on a run or something like that. And uh, that versatility I see in those watches of, of sort of that type of caliber. But the materials would still be it's stainless steel on the outside. I can, uh, I can refinish it. A metallurgist or a jeweler can fill it back in with some steel if you really gouge it out. Um, it's relatively inexpensive. Um, and then as far as the as the guts go, 
as we move forward with more technology and everything else, anti-magnetism is the key. And the Faraday cage and the Rolex was a was is really an interesting thing. So, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> wraps it up pretty nicely. Well. Yeah, it does wrap up pretty nicely. Well, Matt, we yeah. really appreciate you coming on. Um, it's been great. Obviously, we we all get to see you, you know, at least once a month when you make it to, to Red Bar when we get to start meeting up. And uh, it'll be fun to see you back in the shop. I got I got some Seikos to check out here either later this week or early next week when things open back up. Yeah, so, awesome. Uh, no, thanks for having yeah, me. Yeah, this is the time. I have a sneaking suspicion right. you'll probably end up being a repeat guest just because there's so many good questions and it's it's been a, it's been an awesome time chatting with you here for about an hour tonight. So, yeah, likewise. I love sharing uh, sharing my world with you guys, and I like when you guys share your yeah. worlds with me. And uh, as always, yeah. good to see Thanks you. Thanks for coming on, and uh, we hope everybody enjoyed the episode. Um, feel free to go. If you're in the local Cincinnati area, come come meet Matt at Richter & Phillips on 6th and Main downtown. Uh, great location. Um, and then you can find him on Instagram at Cincy Watchdoc. Um, and then, uh, you know, uh, be sure to check out that Hodinkee article. That was pretty cool. He featured a pretty prominently in that. So uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, We'll see you next week. See ya.